Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. They say no weed is mightier than the hoe and no muddle. Better tied it in the end without a good brush. Amazing how the leaves fall and the dust blows about. And we need to keep at the tidying to have gardens looking at their best. There is no better group of plants for flower power than forms of the shrubby My thanks to this week's sponsor, Warfield Plants Limited, Bridge North in Shropshire. Hello and welcome to This Week in the Garden. I'm Peter Seabrook, here to exchange some news, views, a bit of seasonal advice and uh, hopefully answer some of your gardening quandaries. It's been another busy week, oh dear my diary, with no let up in this summer of sun, showers and lush plant growth. After a gap of uh, two years, the return of Mr Fothergill's press day on their impressive trials near Newmarket was a real pleasure. Great to meet up with some of my fellow gardening scribes and broadcasters, as well as see all the novelties that uh, Fothergill, D.T. Brown and Johnson's are releasing for 2022. I've already sown their selection of little gem lettuce and hope the autumn is kind to allow growth to maturity. Next month I'll be changing variety to winter gem, which grows uh, in the polytunnel under shortening days. John Fothergill told me the trade increased by 400% during the early stages of lockdown and I marvel how a reduced staff coped with such a dramatic increase. On my journey home, an evening visit was made to Paul Hansord, former director of Thompson & Morgan, and expect to hear more from him in the future. His design ideas to make uh, garden plant growing more successful really are quite interesting. Last Friday, uh, a day was spent videoing the Flora Select Year of the Kalenja uh, 2021 trial in the Floral Fantasia area at the RHS uh, Garden Hyde Hall. I haven't done much work to camera lately and uh, took a few minutes to find my feet, but like riding a bike, the balance soon comes back. And during that quite busy day, there were visitors, of course, uh, plenty of visitors to the garden, but also uh, two really important plant breeders uh, in Britain, Simon Crawford. He and I first came together more than 50 years ago, I think, on the launch of Red Alert Tomato uh, and uh, many more tomatoes come from him uh, subsequently, and Charles Vallin, the breeder of sun-believable helianthus, oh, and all of those uh, Rudbeckia enchantment. Charles has two of his reselections in the uh, Calendula trial, uh, namely uh, Calendula crown orange and uh, crown yellow, and both have uh, an attractive crested centre. 
amongst uh, many gems of information, Charles told us that uh, cultivars with a dark red reverse to the petals were generally more susceptible to mildew. And that was confirmed by my colleague Steve Bradley, who's been uh, up at Harlow Carve viewing a duplicate uh, trial. Both of us have found that uh, Indian Prince and Neon were showing signs of uh, this disease. As to seasonal advice, just a quick word, there's quite a lot of brown rot infecting plums and apples, and it'll spread if the weather stays uh, humid. Pick those off uh, as soon as you see them starting to develop, and ideally bury them deeply in the ground to prevent the spread of this disease. If they're left on the tree, they mummify, and these mummified fruits spread the disease in 12 months' time. What's in the news? Well, plenty, of course. The details are coming in of new plants to be launched at the Chelsea Flower Show next month. Camellia, a thousand and one summer nights, jasmine should cause a stir. It flowers non-stop from May to September. A single red, uh, and I believe with fragrance. I can't wait to see it. Uh, but I'm told it really does flower non-stop all those months. And it'll be uh, interesting to see uh, if uh, the uh, exhibit from Sutton's, the Rainbow Candy Crush, <laughs> actually uh, provides some kale crisps for us to taste. You know, they say that it's very good for kale crisps. Well, let's have a go and see whether we agree. A time for your questions. Jenny Bunn has emailed uh, thisweekinthegarden at gmail.com and writes, I bought an apricot tree which has grown well, never produced any apricots, but I've just picked some plums. It's obviously reverted to the original rootstock. How should I prune it? Uh, this may sound a bit strange to uh, some listeners, but uh, Jenny's not the first uh, to have uh, bought one thing and suddenly got another. In fact, uh, just over the fence, my neighbour had uh, a Victoria plum tree and now that's gone and all she has is a bullis, a wild plum. The reason we do this grafting is because we want to bring together two quite different qualities. In one case, the strength of root, perhaps, and above ground, the cultivar, the tasty plum that we want to introduce to those roots. We need to have a root stock ideally one which has a vigour which will give the size of tree we require and in some cases the rootstock also has some disease resistance as happens with apples with the mauling merton stocks. Some of those are resistant to woolly aphid. Uh, but of course if um, you've got the variety you want grafted at ground level onto a rootstock and suckers come from the roots then those suckers can be stronger than the above-ground cultivar and take over completely. Uh, in the normal case, uh, you would tear off the sucker at a very young stage, and if you pull it and tear it away, it means that eyes at the base of that sucker won't grow to produce more suckers. It, it pulls it away much more cleanly. But then we get on to the uh, apricot tree, which... Uh, has never produced fruits. 
Well, I suppose one in six or one in seven years one might get fruits from particularly the older kinds of apricot. If you have one of the more modern Canadian bread, delicot, or one of those that ends in cot, C-O-T-T, you stand a much better chance of fruiting. But even then, uh, it can be a, a bit schizophrenic. This year, I didn't have uh, any fruits on uh, my flavour cot. Uh, but um, Paul in Suffolk, just over the county border, had quite a good yield. I'm not surprised I didn't get any because we had a lot of frost in April. And that will, of course, knocked out the, uh, the apricot flowers. When it comes to pruning... Whether the tree either came originally incorrectly named or the apricot has been swamped by a sucker growth, as long as the plum is edible, then pruning for all stone fruits, apricot, plum, peach, cherry and gauge, they're all the same. Once the branch framework on young trees has been set, the only pruning is a branch removal or shortening uh, to remove a dead wood to retain shape and size and this is done after fruiting July-August. The reason for this is the cut will dry and callous somewhat to reduce the chance of silver leaf disease spores entering the wound. If you have um, a query or a question then please just uh, email it to us this week in the garden at gmail.com My guest this week on the podcast is the writer William Alexander. William currently lives on the east coast of the United States. We spoke via the internet two weeks ago as William prepared to make a cross-country move. William is an accomplished writer, having been published by the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post and the New York Times. But it's his books that led to our inviting him to appear on the podcast. William's bestseller, The $64 Tomato, is full of great stories for gardeners and his forthcoming book, Ten Tomatoes That Changed the World, has been chosen as a theme to be brought to life at this year's Chelsea Flower Show. I wanted to talk to William about both of those books and started by asking him just what was behind the title, The $64 Tomato. Yeah, that that was my first book and the, the title of that book comes from the cost to grow every one of the precious 18 heirlooms I had grown that year. The book is a memoir about building my first garden. I knew nothing about gardening at all. And my wife and I bought this house with acres of land. And we said, let's put in a little vegetable garden. The next thing we knew, we had 22 beds and we were battling uh, Neighbor feeding deer and groundhogs and bugs and everything under the sun. After I wrote that book, I realized that even though I had the word tomato in the title, I actually didn't know much about them. In fact, I thought that tomatoes were something that came from Italy. And I was shocked when I learned that they're actually a native of Peru, Mexico. And uh, I figured, well, if I don't know, there's probably a lot about this topic 
that other people don't know. And I started writing this book about the history of tomato. And the more I worked on the book, the more I found just these wild stories that involve charlatans and con men and <laughs> mafia. And I discovered the impact that they've had on, on the entire world from creating the first global food pizza to one of the first canned foods that went to war. And I thought this would be a fun book to write. Well, and if, if my history is correct, uh, here in the UK, we believe that the first tomatoes came across from South America to Spain and then slowly to the UK, where I think we called them love apples. Um, yes, that's and, right. And grew them decoratively. We didn't grow them to eat at all. You know, we were, I think, afraid of eating them. Yeah, they actually took like 300 years to catch on in Europe, which is just shocking. You know, for 300 years, people either looked at them as something that you might grow in window box. Some people thought they were poisonous. Some thought you were supposed to eat the leaves, didn't know what part of the plant you're supposed to eat. Munched on a few leaves and said, oh, these tomatoes are terrible. And that was the <laughs> end of that. It really took a, a just a shockingly long time for them to catch on. And when you think how popular pizza is now today, was there no pizza in Italy until the arrival of the tomato? Uh, yes. Now, you, you, know, you can say that, well, you know, pizza is a flatbread, and so there's been pizza ever since the first flatbreads were cooked on a stone. But pizza as we know it today, which is a flatbread with tomatoes and cheese baked in a very hot oven, was invented in Naples in somewhere around 1700. It's actually a great story about probably the most popular pizza in the world, the margarita. You know, tomatoes, cheese, basil. And for years, there's been this story going around that this pizza is named after the queen who came to Naples 1889 and the queen shocked everyone by eating this peasant food, which by the 1880s, tomatoes were a part of it. You could have pizza with other things on it. Sometimes it just had a little cheese and anchovies. But by the 1880s, we were seeing more and more that they were becoming a really uh, integral part of the, uh, the pizza. So anyway, she comes to town and has the owner of a local pizza joint make her three pies. And so this, uh, this chef makes a pizza, very uh, politically astute chef, makes a pizza with the colors of the Italian flag, the red of the tomatoes, the white of the cheese, the green basil. The queen is very moved, said, this is my favorite. And so he names it after her, the margarita pizza. Well, this story has been accepted as fact for over 100 years. A huge amount of ink has been spilled about the queen's motives, Someone has compared it to when Princess Diana embraced an AIDS patient. It was, you know, the, the royalty coming together with the commoner. And one of the reasons why the, the story has stayed around for so long is that the pizza shop, which is called Pizzeria Brandy, still on their wall, has a letter from the Queen's private secretary thanking the chef for the pizza. So everyone accepts this as fact. The problem is the letter is a total forgery. 
the handwriting doesn't match any samples of Secretary's handwriting. The seal, which looks like a pretty convincing seal, doesn't match any other known seals of the royal house. There's no uh, log of the letter in their books, and they recorded everything. The most damning thing, though, is that the letter is addressed to Rafael Esposito Brandy. The chef's name was Rafael Esposito. His wife is Brandy. And I can assure you that Italian men, neither now nor in the 1800s, took their wives' names. <laughs> so the question is, who, who forged this letter? And we can let the, the chef off the hook because he wouldn't have miswritten his own name. So the best guess is that the wife's family, who inherited the pizzeria in the 1920s, you know, during the height of the Great Depression, trying to do anything to, to keep this place open, reached back to an old family legend and decided to embellish it a bit, let's say, by forging this letter. And if that's the case, I mean, it's got to be one of the most successful forgeries in history. I mean, the story is in every history of pizza ever written. And I think more to the point, the pizzeria, which is just another of the zillion in Naples, is now in every guidebook. The millions have, of tourists have walked through that place to eat where the supposed <laughs> margarita pizza was born. Well, I'll tell you, I won't look at another margarita pizza without that thought very much in my mind. <laughs> what a great story, Bill. Then you mentioned tinned tomatoes affecting the war. So we're talking about the Civil War, the U.S. Civil War. So tinned tomatoes really became popular just in time for the war, and they did very well in cans because... Tomatoes are very acidic, and so they, they, they keep well. And canning was pretty crude in those days. The, the lids were soldered on by hand. Things would spoil all the time. And so in, in the States, all the canneries were centered in the north because that's where the tomatoes were. And actually, many of them were out in the fields. And so Union troops went to war with canned food. And the South had a scrounge. I mean, the South had to go and steal food or beg for food. So after a battle where the South had won, the South would always raid the Union stores. And, that, and so for many people, their first taste of canned tomatoes was during Civil War. After the war, they said, hey, let's keep eating these. These are pretty good. And the odd thing is that they also played a, a role in the Second World War. It's unthinkable to think about Italy without tomatoes, but uh, they made what's called the Pact of Steel. And in the very fine print of that, so fine that most people didn't even know it was there, was that to get coal, they would give Germany their almost entire tomato crop. So during the Second World War where, of course, there were food shortages everywhere. There were no tomatoes in, in, in Italy because they had given 90% of them to the Germans. My goodness. The research you've done sounds to have been exhaustive. Were there any big surprises you uncovered? The biggest surprise was the role that pigs played 
in the invention of the iconic dish of pasta al pomodoro. That is pasta with tomato sauce. And as we spoke about, it took a surprising long time for tomatoes to be eaten. But even after they did start to eat tomatoes in Europe, which was like in the 1700s, Italians had been eating pasta since like 1200. But it seemed to never have occurred to anyone to put the two on the same plate. <laughs> and so tomatoes were used like in sauces and stews on meats and fish. And pasta was street food, eaten with the hands, just dressed with a little bit of lard. Maybe if you had an extra corn in your pocket, uh, you could add some cheese. But tomatoes, never. And around 1850, up in Parma, they started to change the type of pig that they were using to make prosciutto. They stopped using the black pigs, which also gave very nice lard, which was dressed on the pasta. And the breeds that they switched to made better prosciutto, but they had lousy lard. And so it seems to have prompted people in the South, Italy, and again, we're back to the Naples area, which is the home of pizza too, to start trying other things like tomatoes on their pasta. So it really wasn't until the 1880s that tomatoes and pasta were commonly eaten. Amazing, yeah. You are completing my education on tomatoes at a remarkable rate here. <laughs> <laughs> now, I was prompted to make our introduction to you on the strength of um, an exhibit that's going to be staged at the Chelsea Flower Show where Pennard Plants and uh, Simon Crawford hope to reproduce some of those uh, varieties that feature in your forthcoming book. But you mentioned in the $64 tomato book about the difficulty growing brandy wine. Now, you need to explain to us a bit because um, I don't have the same problem with Super Chuck that you, that you had, I think. <laughs> we don't have super chucks here, I don't think. You you, you, you don't have the same problem? No. <laughs> you, don't, you, you don't have groundhogs? Oh, bless you. I've been gardening in the wrong country all this time. So, you know, so one of the problems that I, that I had starting my garden was in keeping all the critters at, at bay. One of the biggest problems that we have here in the, in the, in the Northeast United States is um, it goes by the name either woodchuck or groundhog, the same, same critter. And so um, I had built an electric fence that was about a foot and a half high and with strands of wire. And I would come out in the morning and I'd see that even though I had this electric fence with 10,000 volts pulsing through it, that my tomatoes were still getting eaten. And let me say, I'm not an animal hater. If, if the groundhog would want to eat one out of six tomatoes, I would be fine with that. But the groundhog will take one bite out of six <laughs> tomatoes, ruining all six, leaving me with nothing. And so I tried everything I could do to keep this out. And then one day, looking out the kitchen window, and I saw the groundhog approach the fence, and it waited a moment. 
and then it leapt between the wires, timing its jump between the one-second pulses of the fence. Goodness. And I said, that's a smart groundhog. And that's when I came to the, the conclusion I was probably never going to keep animals out of my garden because while I'm smarter, they, they just have more time. You know, <laughs> he's got all day to do nothing but think about how to get into my garden. <laughs> but, but that's amazing that, 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 it, that it could figure out the pulse and then jump between the wires. Yeah, it, it really There is. must be some human beings who are not aware of things like pulses and just put their hand on the wire by mistake. Well, actually, uh, my tree surgeon would be one of those. I had a guy come to, uh, to take down a couple of trees, and I, I was watching him do this strange dance on his truck, <laughs> and it turned out that a little part of his... Uh, part of his truck was just touching one of the one of the wires on the on, on the fence and he couldn't figure out what was going on he thought he was getting sh- you know shorted out from his truck or something and i i did have a sign saying electric fence you know high voltage uh, do not go near but it was sitting in the in my wood shop i hadn't yet gotten around to hanging <laughs> it on the on the fence so, so it's quite effective at keeping out humans but not so good on super chat yes <laughs> Having had such a turbulent time of it, if you could travel back in time to the beginning of your planting a garden, what advice would you give yourself? (laughs) (laughs) Start small and stay small. You know, when when we got that garden, we were like kids in a in a candy store. I mean, (laughs) we started out with a couple of beds, and then we'd be reading through the seed catalog. And we'd say, oh, let's, let's, you know, let's put in some carrots. Oh, you know, let's put in some berries. And, you know, the next, next thing you know, uh, we actually had to, uh, had to hire people to help. It just became almost a small farm. The origin of that book really was that it was not meant to be a, a humorous gardening book at all. I was writing a serious book about, about my first garden. And, you know, there are a zillion of those, right? And uh, the reason I was writing my own book was that I couldn't relate anything that was happening in my own garden with what I was reading in the books. I would read things like cut off all of these strawberry runners that are three years old. Well, have you ever looked at a strawberry plant? You can't tell whether they're six months or five years old. They all look the same. <laughs> and so I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to write my own gardening book from the, the point of view of someone who's not an expert, just, you know. And, you know, thank goodness that's not the book I wrote because it would have been just a horribly boring book. And the day that changed was I had been fighting a horrible weed we have here in the States called purslane. And you cannot kill this weed with anything. I mean, I tried digging it up. I tried fire. I tried everything. And it just comes back constantly. And it was just the bane of my gardening existence. And once, one summer day, I, I took a break from the garden. I came inside to have a glass of iced tea and read the New York Times, and there on the front page of a section of the New York Times was an article about my arch enemy, Purslane. Not in the gardening section, but in the food section. 
and chefs like Jean Georges were sprinkling a little olive oil and and le- lemon juice on this junk and and, and serving it up at you know seventeen dollars a plate. And I thought, <laughs> after I was you know got over the shock, I thought this is hilarious, <laughs> you know. And I said, you know, the, the the thought occurred to me that you know one man's weed is John George's salad. And I took that title as the title on the chapter of weeding, totally changed the direction of the book and end up writing uh, a book that turned out to be the $64 <laughs> tomato. Another great story. Bill, you're about to move, I understand, from the East Coast to the West. Now, is there a story there at all? That's, I mean, it's such a long way, isn't it? I mean, it's an enormous distance. It is close to 3,000 miles. You'd have to speak to my wife about the reasons why we're moving. I'll, I'll just say that the lure of the grandchildren is strong. Oh, right. And uh, so, you know, it gets me, uh, gives me a chance to try gardening, entire new place, different weather, uh, not that far from uh, the, the northern rainforest over there in the Olympia Peninsula. And uh, I shouldn't have to water the garden, seeing that it rains almost every day for a good part of the year out there. So your gardening should be much more successful, shouldn't it, in that uh, more gentle climate? Oh, I don't know about that. (laughs) (laughs) My gardening has never been successful. (laughs) Bill, it's been great chatting to you. I look forward to your book. Uh, Can you tell us when it will be out? It's going to be out in the States in June of next, next year, I think June 8th. And uh, I'm not sure when it'll be out in, uh, in the UK and other places. I will let you know, though. Okay, if you could, please. But in the meantime, the $64 tomato is about. Thank you, Peter. It's been nice talking with you. My privilege and my pleasure. I appreciate your time. Just a couple of tips as a tailpiece on tomatoes, which uh, seem to be the subject of uh, our podcast this week. When you're doing that trimming, you'll find your fingers get really nastily stained with the green tomato sap. And if you want to remove that, just get a green tomato, cut it open and use the juice and you'll find all that stain comes off your finger in a flash. Another word of advice. There's quite a lot of potato blight about now. And of course, that will affect both potatoes and outdoor tomatoes. Those under glass where the foliage stays dry, with a bit of luck, might escape. But once you do see a bit of that uh, brown spreading disease on the leaves, then take the leaves off. In the case of uh, potatoes, cut them. Cut all the stems, take it away because the blight can drop down and infect the tubers. In the case of uh, tomatoes, well then, uh, just keep defoliating as much as you can. If the uh, disease really gets a hold, I'm afraid it can uh, attack the fruits too. Next year, you need to look for a tomato which has blight resistance, and there are quite a number. Thanks for listening. Hope to be back next week. My thanks to this week's sponsor, Warfield Plants, Bridge North, Shropshire. 
to my producer, Rich Jarman, and of course, to you for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. 